0: Have you noticed that politicians struggle to enact the things they run on, that regardless of who wins elections, lawmakers find that they cannot pass whatever legislation they like? They find themselves bound by what is popular, or at least their sense of it. They can only enact legislation within a narrow range of policies, and this spectrum is called the Overton Window. And on the Overton Window podcast, we look at issues around the country and the people changing what is politically possible. Now, one way that uh, the Overton window shifts is through court intervention. Sympathetic clients and successful arguments in court can persuade judges to interpret the law in new ways, which changes policy without having to get a bill passed. A judge's ruling by itself, however, doesn't alter the window. But there is a lot about uh, litigation that can. Uh, The arguments made in court highlight problems with current policy, the people harmed by laws become advocates for change, and their stories can be persuasive outside of the court. And unlike uh, editorial arguments or purchased advertisements, litigation cannot be ignored. Courts have to respond, and that itself garners outside interest on issues that could otherwise be brushed aside. Now, There are public interest law firms who specialize in changing policy through litigation. The American Civil Liberties Union of Michigan has been at the forefront of this on a range of issues, education, immigrants' rights, privacy, and criminal justice, among others, and has decades of experience turning court cases into policy change. Kim Budden is policy counsel for the ACLU of Michigan, where she develops and implements uh, their litigation and advocacy strategy. Kim, tell me about one of your policy victories and what you did to
1: get it adopted. Yeah, thanks. So thanks for having me with you. Um, We have had quite a few issues over the last couple of years where the litigation has turned into some sort of legislative action. you know, this, like you mentioned, immigration is, is one of those spaces, um, definitely around criminal justice reform. A lot of times what we see is we try really hard to get new laws in place, and there's just not the political climate for it. We just mm-hmm. can't get the movement um, for a variety of reasons. And Certainly, that's the ideal space to do it because it's much more proactive and it doesn't cost as much money to do as litigation. Um, but sometimes we have to go to court. And that's especially what we're starting to see when it comes to criminal justice reform, um, things around the COVID vaccine and making sure that uh, individuals who are incarcerated are prioritized and, um, around making sure when COVID first happened, around uh, making sure that individuals who were in the jail system were able to get proper uh, uh, isolation and they were getting proper care. Um, all of these were things that we attempted to kind of work either with the legislature or sort of on the county level, um, getting policies implemented. And uh, it just didn't quite happen. And so we ended up having to go through the litigation strategy. Mm-hmm.
0: So, um why did uh, lawmakers feel that they can just ignore your uh, request for uh, for legislation?
1: Well, it sort of depends. Um, sometimes they're ignoring it because there's not a law that explicitly says they have to do something um, or because they interpret the law differently. Uh, and a lot of the times it's just because they don't think they have the votes. It might not be an issue that's, you know, protected is particularly popular at the time. We saw this with a lot of things around uh, different types of registries um, that we had some successful litigation on. And that's just not a topic that people like to talk about. It's not one that's fun to go back to your constituents and tell them that, hey, yeah, this is the constitutional thing, but it makes everybody feel really uncomfortable. And we understand like that political atmosphere. We understand that they are voices for the people, but they're also trying to get reelected. Uh, and so sometimes using the courts is a good way to give them political coverage where they can say the courts made us do this. Mm -hmm. And even if it's something that they actually agreed with, um, because they know that their constituents want it, or maybe their party want it, um, they can, you know, make sure that they're doing the right thing and still being able to stay true to whatever their political aspirations are.
0: Okay. So would you dig in on, on one of those issues? Like, uh, for instance, you said that uh, you're trying to stand up for you know, the people who are incarcerated to make sure that they can get COVID vaccines. Mm-hmm. What are you doing on this issue?
1: Yeah. So we did initially, um, we were preparing to file litigation around this, and we were able to work really closely with the governor's office and with the Department of Corrections uh, to really get folks to understand uh and when I say we, I mean the ACLU as well as a slew of other partners, of course, we never do this work alone. We were able to really get folks to understand that people who are incarcerated are very much like any under, any other individual in a congregate community. And we started to see all these different outbreaks within the, the prisons that weren't being addressed. And we were very concerned that folks who had gotten some sort of prison sentence were actually going to get a death sentence because they were coming into contact with COVID. And uh, unfortunately at the time, uh, the department and the governor's office hadn't implemented a policy that was going to prioritize prisoners um, in when they started talking about their tiering system, or at least it wasn't clearly outlined. Uh, And so, Through some additional discussions and through sort of this initial um, filing, we saw them sort of come back and really understand that this is something that uh, really needed to be prioritized and needed to be clarified. And we were actually able to avoid going, you know, fully through the court system and all of that, um, which was, which is great. But it's always disappointing when we have to get to the point of having to litigate something in order to start having conversations. Um, and that, that, just, that just is the case. Everybody's really busy and it's hard to know what to prioritize until somebody comes really knocking at your door.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So in this case, you were prepared to go to court. How did you get a client for this case?
1: Um, well, it's it's not too difficult to find uh, f- folks in, in the prison system who are uh, who are dealing with all types of issues. Um, we have a legal team, and we do have an intake process, um, and we get lots of phone calls and. Um, All types of things. And so uh, we have our our intake team monitors all of that. Um, And throughout through that process, we're able to identify certain trends um, that we really need to pay attention to and, you know, really start to lift up. And then um, our legal team makes a determination about whether or not that is a Uh, a case that we have the capacity to take on, and uh, if it's impact litigation, that's what we really focus on, things that are going to have a widespread impact. Um, So we don't do a lot of one-on-one representation that some of the more direct service law firms do. We're really interested in that that broader impact litigation. Uh, And so our legal team decided that this was an issue that we were interested in, in working on, Um, we consulted with a lot of our different partners. And um, so it sort of just went from there. And all of that was happening while we were having conversations with all types of different stakeholders, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. And it's nice uh, when just the threat of litigation allows you to get some of the changes that you want to see. Well, uh, I think a lot of our listeners might not know about what a public interest law firm is and does. So can you tell me more about your intake process, how you figure this out? Because I assume there's a lot of people out there who are looking for, you know, free legal advice and free legal representation.
1: Yeah. So our intake is base is usually online. Um, we do get a lot of mail and stuff like that and phone calls. Um, and we have a uh, Person on our team that's specifically dedicated to doing the intake process, but a lot of the intake is you can simply submit a complaint online about whatever issue it is that you're looking to get resolved, um, and then that gets filtered through our system to you know determine whether or not this is something that the ACLU even works on. Um, a lot of people hear civil, you know, ACLU is. American Civil Liberties Union, they think we do just civil law. Um, Mm -hmm. So we'll get Mm -hmm. calls about, you know, uh, domestic support orders and custody agreements, and that's not quite what we do. So, <laughs> we do have to filter out for things like that. Um, and then we have a lawyers' committee as well as an entire legal team that really consult on whether or not this is an issue that, like I said, we have the capacity, staff capacity, volunteer um, pro bono attorneys, um, whatever it may be, whether it fits into our issue areas. Um, and they decide based on those things, whether this is something that the ACLU can engage in, or if it's something that we, sh- that really needs to be deferred to like another organization or a private entity.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, how many of your, uh, the people that come in through your process do you recommend for someone else?
1: Oh, I, I don't even know. Um, Sorry. I can tell you, we get, we get like hundreds of folks Calling and emailing and sending letters all the time, and as you can imagine, like you, you know, we've mentioned litigation is takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of resources, so we can only deal with a fraction of, of that type of um, of that type of work. Um, the other thing is that not everything does require the litigation. So mm-hmm. because our legal department and our political and our legislative department work so closely hand-in-hand, hand, sometimes it, a legal issue that somebody has can be resolved by referring it to the legislature, you know, sending them directly to their, um, their particular senator or state representative, or if it's a policy issue that you are currently working on, then we can, um, you know, let them know what, the, what the process is and where we're sort of at on that issue. So it really is like a circular um, kind of movement.
0: How do you pick your issues?
1: Um, So the priority issues we work on, they're all constitutional, um, civil rights and civil liberties issues. So things that are uh, enshrined in the Bill of Rights. Um, We do pretty much anything from immigration, LGBT, women's issues, uh, criminal justice reform, privacy and technology, First Amendment, um, all of like everything, really, it seems like, but all of those constitutional issues, um, we, we tend to dig into, but the civil liberties piece are things that aren't necessarily enshrined in the Constitution, things like um, things that are sort of implied in it, like racial justice and equity and, you know, poverty alleviation. um, Those are all issues that are civil liberty issues that are not necessarily constitutionally protected. And so we do work on those issues as well.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, So you've got, uh, you've just been very fortunate in that you're famous enough where people know some of the things that what, uh, of what you're doing, and you're just able to get clients because of that?
1: Yeah. You know, I, I think we have a lot of great relationships with partners. Um, We've done, we have so many people that we work with so many different organizations, whether it's, you know, in the prison system, in the, um, in the communities. uh, And we have a lot of volunteers that have worked with us over the years. And so we're able to utilize those relationships and people, you know, sort of think, oh, yeah, the ACLU. Um, But we've been around for a really, really long time. And that can be a good thing. It can be a bad thing. Some people think of us as like, like I I always say, like, we're not your grandma's ACLU anymore. Right. Um, Where where they're thinking of us for, you know, very specific things. And other folks are sort of realizing, oh, we do this wide breadth of things as well. And so there's a little bit of like rebranding happening there at the same time. Um, so it presents challenges of really educating people about the breadth of issues that we work on, as well as getting them to understand what sort of scope that we can actually work on this. Because like I said, you know, we get a lot of people calling about their specific thing that mm-hmm. they need. and
0: The um, most important issue is yeah, the one that's the, affecting me. Yeah, the
1: one that affects you. Me. And sometimes it's something that we can, we can work on, but sometimes it's not.
0: Mm-hmm. How does your litigation turn into legislation?
1: Yeah. So this is really interesting. Um, There's a couple of different things that can happen with this. Um, Sometimes we are litigating on some, on a specific statute. We're trying to get the court to interpret or um, apply a specific Michigan law a certain way. And that's kind of the easiest way to see where a, some sort of litigation would turn into legislation because whatever the court interprets or applies, then the legislature tries to go back and redraft that particular law to be whatever it is that they, to comply with the court's order. But sometimes- Or find
0: also, a loophole with it. Or
1: find a loophole, which often happens as well, or find a loophole to make sure that that law does not do what the court said it did. <laughs> um and then we sort of have the situation where we we've, we've litigated on an on an on a issue. Uh, it was some something that happened to a person, and um, we're trying to apply constitutional uh, principles to it. And because of that, because that particular situation, this person was wrong, um, the court determines that their constitutional rights were violated, then the legislature will go back through and try to prevent or sometimes allow um, whatever <laughs> situation occurred um, to be taken care of in a law. And so... Um, we've had things, you know, around civil asset forfeiture, for example, and whether or not that was a due process violation and, you know, the courts interpreting that Um, we've had, uh, we've seen had litigation around what's what's called debtors prisons. When a person can't afford to pay the fees that are associated with um, their, their court proceeding, and then they're then uh, incarcerated for that. So we've done litigation around that. And the, the legislature then, um, because of that, the finding of the court then went back through and was like, okay, we really have to figure out legislatively what types of things can um, court, uh, court fees be used for, when can they be assessed, what happens if somebody doesn't pay them. And fundamentally, we need to look at how we're funding our court system. And all of that happens through the appropriation process, which is all like a legislative thing, right? So there's a lot, there's like quite a bit of that overlap happening there.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, so tell me more about that issue in particular. Um, what What is the work that you've done and uh, what work have you done with the legislature?
1: Sure. So ACLU uh, filed a lawsuit several years ago. Um, in people v cunningham and this was a case that involved a, a, a gentleman who um there i believe it was a criminal case and associated with it he had all these different fines and fees that were that the court assesses and they assess things like filing fees um reporting requirement fees all this different stuff um and he wasn't able to afford
0: and, it sorry to interrupt but no, that's no just one of those uh, uh things where, we're making the courts look like a, uh, uh trying Watch to fund easy. them on, well, or was going to say a user fee or paying them with user fees instead of taxes. So yes. if you use the court, that is, if you're accused yeah. of something, they're trying to recoup all the costs based yep. on, uh, based on this.
1: Yep, exactly. You've used the court system, so you should pay for the court system. But what we also know is a lot of people who end up, um, justice involved, are, are people who are in um, low-income situations. They are people of color. I mean, it's just a disproportionate number of those folks. And so at the time, the court wasn't even assessing whether or not people could afford to pay these fees that they that they were requiring them to pay. And so they were locking people away for not being able to pay all of these fees that they've put on them, even though they, that person was never going to be able to afford that. Um and so we sued over this, and the court ultimately said, yeah, you have to do an ability to pay determination, and this is not right. You know, the things that the courts were, were being – that those fees were funding, you know, just ridiculous things, gym memberships, and uh, you know, just all types of things that weren't Wait, actually – yeah. <laughs> um, all types of things that aren't even actually related to the functioning of the court. It's just sort of went into this pot. Um, and so the court Wait, said, so, yeah, sorry. you can't do that either. Tell,
0: <laughs> tell me more about these gym memberships. Cause I, I, you said something and I don't know what that, what yeah, that means. We're so paying for, uh, someone's gym benefits. membership with, Okay. Oh.
1: Yeah, there impl- but gym memberships is on this list of things that not just this particular person, but other people in doing sort of this research that we saw the courts were using this money to pay for. Um, but it would be anything as simple as you know their their electricity, overtime.
0: Mm-hmm. Their These papers, are just court costs. We're court's going to cost. Try- we're going to assess these onto the people that use the courts. And
1: so the court looked at it and said, well, one, you didn't do an ability to pay determination, which is not okay because you can't essentially lock people away because they're poor. Um, and two, you can't use this, these fees for things that aren't actually related to the cost of this court and and the cost of what this person is utilizing this for. Um, And it just really starts to trap people in this cycle of poverty, of course, you know, because then you get, you have a fee that you can't pay, so then you get a penalty for not paying it, and then you get arrested, and then you have to pay for your time in jail, and it's just like just the most ridiculous thing.
0: Yeah. So. uh, an article fairly recently, which is just asking you know people from different uh, different socioeconomic backgrounds whether they were happy and what was or what were the things weighing on them. Mm-hmm. And for all the people uh, all the poorer people that they asked, they had fees, whether it was just parking fees or something else.
1: yeah. I mean, there was a study done. I think it said that you know most Americans couldn't come up with four hundred dollars um, in an emergency. And, you know, in some cities, that's a parking ticket that hasn't been paid for for a year mm-hmm. <laughs> um, or, it, you know, that's that's easily fees associated with the with the court. So what when the court kind of made this ruling, um, the legislature pulled together a lot of different folks, put this working group together saying, OK, we really have to assess the statute that allows for this. And. Um,
0: and this and was one of those you really don't have a choice anymore. You don't you have a choice.
1: The court says you can't do this and as long if you do nothing then the courts can't be funded. There's no funding mechanism here in place because we've set up a really bad system, right? Um so the legislature is like, "Okay, we have to look at this. Let's figure it out." They make some changes, uh they they put in an ability to pay determination, they you know, make some changes around, but like at the end of the day that it still didn't do enough. And it was because there was a time crunch on this, right? The courts usually say, figure this out. You have X amount of time to figure this out before we have to make additional rulings. And so they made some changes and they sort of said, we're going to put a study group together, a work group, a commission. Um, Michigan legislature loves to put a, a commission mm-hmm. together. <laughs> and they said, we'll study it and we'll come back to it. And they sort of kick the can down the road. And unfortunately, that's what's been happening continuously for the last several years. And so this is just still continues to be an issue that's not fully resolved. Um, And it's because there's politics behind it. It's difficult, right? It's just Mm -hmm. it's hard. But the court ruling is still there and it still just hasn't quite been addressed
0: part of what you're doing requires you to be uh, consistent and persuasive to both Republicans and Democrats. What have you learned about uh, how to make a bipartisan pitch for your reforms?
1: Yeah, this is actually an area that I think a lot of folks think is much more difficult than it really is. I mean, at, the, at the end of the day, regardless of where you fall on the political spectrum, you're a person. And your viewpoints are often shaped by whatever your upbringing was, your reality, the types of things that you've come into contact with. And so I tend to just meet people where they're at, get an understanding of, you know, what do they believe? What's kind of the foundational principles that they believe on? Um, and at the most of the time, what I find is people really want to help each other. They, they, they don't want um, their communities to be harmed. They want them to be saved. They want people to have, you know, equity and fairness, they have different definitions of what that means. And so I try to focus more on the things that we have in common, which there usually are much more of those than the things that are very divisive between us. um, At the same time as acknowledging what might be divisive and just coming to the table, I always put my cards on the table and say, look, we're not going to agree on everything. If we do agree on everything, one of us is doing something wrong. Um, uh, so, and uh, as well as I work with a lot of different partners, I and mean, we work with folks who, who they, I think many people would consider kind of untraditional allies or untraditional partners. Um, you know, we work closely with the Prosecutors Association and the Sheriff's Association, and we really try hard to understand where each other is coming from and find compromises that either everybody can live with, but nobody's totally happy. That's sort of where the best legislation has come from. <laughs> um, and to just really, it, it's, it's about compromising and understanding and not taking things super personally, which can is, it can be hard.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so when you go to the courts and uh, you don't always win, what do you do with your losses?
1: Yeah. Um, well, you know, the, the problem is, I think this is why we're very strategic in selecting types of cases that we we choose um, because the strategy around selecting a case, you also have to think about where that case is going to be brought. What court is going to hear that particular lawsuit? Is there a strong likelihood that that court may rule against us because legal rulings, um, create bad, can create bad precedent. And that's something that we certainly don't want to do. So sometimes an issue might be perfect for us, but the timing may not be right because of like the political makeup of the legislature, the makeup of the court might not be uh, advantageous to us. So if we do happen to get to a situation where we, where we lose like I mentioned before, we're always trying to work on things from a variety of perspectives. So we're working in the community to garner more support. We're working um, within the legislature to kind of change hearts and minds there. um, So that it's not so that everything isn't always resting on our litigation, Um, Mm -hmm. but losses happen and it's unfortunate. And we, you know, just sort of try to learn from them and, uh, and and move forward.
0: Mm -hmm. Have you, ever transferred a loss in court into a victory in the legislature?
1: Hmm. That's a great question. Um, you know, I don't know, not that I can think of off the top of my head. I'm sure it's happened in the history of ACLU. Um, uh, not that I can think of off of the top of my head. Um, that's translated directly. But we've had a lot of things where, like I've mentioned, we are working si- on simultaneous tracks. And so a legal loss um, might not be as detrimental because maybe we're closer to some sort of uh, some sort of resolution uh, within the the political atmosphere. Um, or um, sometimes we are able to get, on a more localized level, on a county or a citywide level, different municipalities are willing to take certain steps that the state might not be willing to take, or that the court can't necessarily mandate. So you you start to look at that as um, sort of baby steps in changing the social atmosphere, and in hopes that another opportunity will present itself, and that we can get you know really get things corrected.
0: Mm-hmm what is it specifically that you do to help your, uh, your case or your, uh, your issues? Um, I mean, there's a lot of things you can do to help move an issue forward. What are your strategies?
1: Yeah. So my work is, is in the legislature. Um, and I work really closely with our legal team. Um, on one we as an organization like to make sure we're coordinating on what issues are priorities um, and so we sort of moved started to move into this campaign atmosphere um, when folks hear campaign they think about political campaigns and this is really just a concerted approach to pushing forward a particular issue so bail reform for example uh, while we do have a a a lawsuit ongoing with bail reform. We're also working within the legislature. We're working within the communities. We're doing public education. Um, And, you know, I'm meeting with legislators regularly. We're working alongside a variety of coalition partners. We're getting op-eds placed. We're Um, having one-on-one meetings, connecting constituents with legislators, um, connecting directly impacted people with legislators, all to really show them the impact and the importance of um, getting these issues uh, passed and changed and created into law. And I I think Not
0: only making your issues, uh, no, sorry, not only making your issues uh, more popular, but- um, having a sense of urgency
1: behind the things you're asking for. Exactly. Showing that there's a sense of urgency and that there's a lot of support, right? Because our legislators don't hear from their constituents very often. And so when they get a, well they hear from some
0: (laughs) consistent constituents very often
1: that's very true that's true that's true not as often as you know people would uh think i think like a a lay the lay person sort of thinks that their legislator is just too busy to talk to anybody Mm -hmm. and and they they love hearing from their constituents about things that are that are affecting them and so if they get you know Ten calls from their community about one particular issue—they're paying attention, right? Mm-hmm. So we really encourage folks to show that their support and urgency for it, and um, and then of course we're providing, you know, all the legal, the legal background, the constitutional arguments for making different types of changes, all types of resource and data, and you know, thankfully we have a national office that's able to. Um, really show what impact different types of policies have had across the the country as well which i think is extremely helpful
0: what's the biggest shift you've seen on your issues and what did your organization do to change what was possible on the
1: subject yeah so not to keep harping on criminal justice reform mm-hmm. but i think that that's one of the ones it's probably the most obvious to folks that we've seen a big shift in the last several years um one because, of course, there was this time period where there was a lot of really severe, harsh sentencing um, happening as a response to like the increase in, in, in drug activity and um, crime rates were going up and all of that stuff. And so there was almost an overcorrection there. And I think a lot of policymakers and community advocates have realized that that did so much more harm than it did good. And it really had just such a detrimental generational effect that we're trying to correct the past here. Um, And so people, again, across the aisle, Democrats, Republicans, Libertarians, everybody is sort of coming together. And looking at this issue for different reasons, whether they're looking at the human impact of it, the the cost impact and how much money we're spending on jails and prisons versus education and mental health, mm-hmm. um, whether they're looking at, you know, the economic impact because of how many people we've removed from our communities that were you know able to work or how many people we've given criminal records to that are unable to work. Um, they're coming to it and saying we have to do something about this. And so we've seen... This bipartisan, nonpartisanship push, um, not even just support, but a push to make these changes happen, everything again from um, pre-trial reform to re-entry and everything in between, which is amazing. And there were years where there was no way any of this stuff was ever going to happen. And here we are. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: Um, where can more people, or where can people uh, learn more about the work that you're doing?
1: Yeah, um, always go to aclumich.org. That's aclumich.org. Uh, We've got a ton of our different issues on there, lots of blog posts. You can um, read things specifically written by me or any of my other wonderful colleagues. Um, You can search by different issues. Um, If you're interested in criminal justice reform, check out our Smart Justice website, which is smartjusticemi.org. And there's lots of really great resources on there. Um, You can sign up to be a volunteer, to just kind of keep in touch with us. And of course, you can follow us on any sort of social media platform.
0: Kim, thank you for talking with me. And congratulations for having shifted the Overton Window.
1: (laughs) Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Overton Window, a podcast by the Mackinac Center for Public Policy. Learn more about The Overton Window at www.theovertonwindow.com.